Hello, ACAC family and guests. If I were asked to describe what is it like living inside this pandemic, I might suggest it's like sailing. Sailing on a sea of uncertainty. The tides of government response are unpredictable. The winds of expert analysis, they're always shifting. The fog of conflicting projections and statistics obscure the horizon. And many of the markers we customarily rely upon for navigation have disappeared entirely. For these and other reasons, my central premise today is this. Successfully navigating times of uncertainty is not for the faint of heart, but it's possible for those who trust God's heart. Now, notice I said possible, not guaranteed. It's possible because God offers his people everything necessary to navigate uncertainty. But it's not guaranteed because for a host of reasons, we don't always take what God offers. And when we don't, the culprit is often a lack of understanding. So today I'm going to focus on two things. I'm going to focus on the Christian virtue that is indispensable for navigating uncertain times. And then I'm going to focus on why we often struggle to lay hold of that virtue and maintain our hold on that virtue. The virtue I'm speaking of is not faith, but instead it's hope. Contrary to what you might expect, my teaching this weekend won't be based on any of the biblical passages that we normally associate with hope. My teaching won't come from some confident declaration in the Psalms. It won't come from some encouraging prophecy from the pen of Isaiah or the reassuring words of the apostles. It comes from a rather unlikely place, the narrative that recounts the darkest hour in human history. And the word hope It's nowhere to be found in the narrative. My text is Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43. And the thief was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I've titled our teaching this weekend, Untiring Hope in Uncertain Times. Will you please join your hearts and your spirits with me in prayer? Father, the task that you have given to me today is totally impossible for me in my own intellect, my own skill. Apart from you, I can do nothing of good and significance. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower me, anoint me, equip me for the proclamation, the accurate proclamation of your transforming, life-giving, life-changing word. 
And what I pray for myself, Lord, I pray for all who are listening. We cannot understand your truth on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to open our understanding. And once we understand, we need the Holy Spirit to empower us to apply that truth. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on all of us. Fall fresh on me as I teach and on all of us as we listen and respond. And as always, I pray these things for the honor of Christ, the welfare of his people, and the sake of our mission in a broken world. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. One of the greatest barriers to communication is the assumption that it's actually taking place. That's why I often open my teaching by defining my terms. That enables us to all be on the same page. That was a favorite expression of former Steeler coach Chuck Knoll. It means we're all thinking about the same thing. So allow me to share my suggested definition for hope from a biblical perspective. Hope is the untiring conviction God is in control and things will ultimately change for the better. Now, notice the italicized words. Conviction. Not here today, gone tomorrow, wishful thinking. Untiring. Not quickly abandoned or easily discouraged. Ultimately, not immediately. And change for the better, not for what we think is better. In a world filled with uncertainties, hope is as essential to our souls as oxygen is to our lungs. Because people with untiring, God-centered hope can navigate any uncertainty because they're confident it won't be their permanent address. They're on their way to something better. For that reason, they can walk any valley with David-like confidence that something better, green pastures, await them. And that conviction enables them to navigate any difficulty or any uncertainty that they encounter along the way. But it's easier to say that than it is to do that. The reality is, even those with untiring hope can grow tired. Even those with David-like hope, even those with diaries chocked full of testimonies and God sightings. Now, not tired of the fight, they recognize the fight is a part of living in this fallen creation, but tired in the fight, emotionally and spiritually weary and spent, especially when uncertainty and disappointment comes in wave after wave after wave, and circumstances suggest that holding on to hope is a fool's errand. When moments like that arrive, we intuitively assume we need to roll up our sleeves and try harder. We need to pray more. 
We need to read God's Word more often. We need to get our praise on and increase our worship. But at the risk of sounding unspiritual, and if you know me, you know it wouldn't be the first time, I'd like to suggest the reality is otherwise. Faltering hope doesn't call for trying harder. It calls for cleaning up our definitions. Cleaning up our concepts of what God's better may look like, how God's better may arrive, and how God's better may totally contradict our current ideas of what would be better. Now, I make that rather odd-sounding suggestion about cleaning up definitions because I'm convinced the primary reason we struggle to hold on to hope doesn't owe, as we're prone to think, to tough conditions as much as it owes to faulty definitions. Definitions that blind us to God's work. Definitions that lead us holding the bag of disappointing illusions. Specifically, our definition of the word better in change for the better. And that's where our text today comes in. The setting is a brief exchange between two men. Two men who appeared to be beyond any hope of change for the better. They appeared to be locked into the worse. Because after all, no one made plans for the exciting things they were going to do immediately after their crucifixion. Except for Jesus. His next stop would be the paradise where God's people, since the beginning of time, awaited their final deliverance. And the thief, he was about to join the guest list for that one-time historic event. Now that reality says a great deal about the true meaning of the word better, specifically the better that God has promised his people. It has something to say to us beginning with this. The better Jesus offers may be very different than the better we envision. You see, the better he offered the thief wasn't miraculous deliverance from the agonizing pain of crucifixion. It wasn't deliverance from death. It was eternal life with God on the other side of death. And that would quickly prove to be far better than a brief return to the thief's old life. But you see, the thief didn't know that at the time. And that reminds us that the better Jesus offers may be initiated, launched, by things that initially appear worse. Now, one compelling example of that is found in one of the most misapplied misquoted, misinterpreted verses in all of Scripture. I'm referring to Jeremiah 29, 11. And as I begin to quote it, you'll recognize it immediately. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, as I've noted when we've studied that passage previously, those words were not spoken to individual believers in the new covenant age, the age that we live in. Those words were spoken to a group of people, to Israelis who were captive in Babylon. False prophets had set them up for disheartening disillusionment with false definitions, specifically false definitions of the future. They were promising rosy days immediately ahead. Jeremiah knew that wasn't true. So Jeremiah made it clear that while God was ultimately going to give them a hope and a future, the initial steps toward that better future were going to involve 70 additional years of exile, during which time they were to actively seek the welfare of the city where they were exiled, Babylon. Now, that certainly didn't feel like a change for the better. It didn't sound like a change for the better. But you see, Israel was suffering the devastating effects of bad definitions. Bad definitions of who they were as God's chosen people and what was involved in being God's chosen people. They misinterpreted what it meant to be chosen. And their bad definitions had produced arrogance, presumption, selfishness, carelessness, idol worship, and sin. And all of those things would prevent God's intended changes for the better. Which is why the better that God intends may first require a death. Now, that was true both for Jesus and for the thief. And what was true of Jesus and the thief is often true of us. We won't see, we won't discern the better that God intends for us if we limit our expectations to our own ideas. So let me get personal. Before we can experience the better that God intends, we may have to accept the death of a dream that was ours, but never God's. The death of our stubborn pride and our self-sufficiency. The death of some paralyzing fear. The death of some deeply rooted, long entrenched bitterness. The death of our misplaced confidence, the death of our cultural idols, the death of our sense of entitlement, the death of our misplaced priorities, the death of our plans, or the death of our love of comfort and predictability. I'd like to suggest that this pandemic offers multiple opportunities for dying to things like that. So as odd as it may sound, don't waste your pandemic. Invest it. And while we're talking about death, 
The death that Jesus experienced and the thief experienced was excruciatingly painful. And in light of that, I'd like to propose that we may miss the better that God intends if we equate better with the removal of pain. We often say, no pain, no gain, when the topic is physical workouts. But no pain, no gain is not only true in physical workouts, but in spiritual growth. That's why we should never waste our pains or waste our sorrows, but instead put them to good use. There's another definition that we may need to clean up during these days of pandemic uncertainty. To hold on to hope, we may need to redefine the word Lord. Long ago, chicken farmers in this country coined the word weaseled to refer to eggs that had been emptied of their contents by the small animal of the same name, the weasel. Now, when an egg has been weaseled, the loss isn't immediately obvious, and it isn't apparent to the naked eye because the weasel makes two tiny, almost invisible holes with two of its very small fangs, and it sucks out the contents of the egg, leaving the shell of the egg intact. So the damage, the loss, isn't discovered until the farmer picks up the egg, and then the loss of weight is obvious. In many respects, I'd like to suggest that the word Lord has been weaseled. It has been emptied of its content, emptied of its weight by the fantasies and the obsessions of our entitled, narcissistic, materialistic Western culture. We like the concept of Jesus is Lord when it's combined with healing and success and a good-paying job and the spouse of a lifetime and God's eternal future and more of the things our hearts desire. But we struggle with the concept of lordship when it leads us through perceived loss, pain, and abiding uncertainty. In culturally compromised thinking, Lord means Jesus has authority over the things that threaten our agendas and our comfortable existence. It means when all appears lost, when those things appear to be threatened, Jesus will ride in to save the day because Jesus is Lord. He'll ride in and save our illusions and save our idols. He'll save us from the stubborn realities of life in a fallen creation. And when he doesn't do that, we question him. But it's ourselves that we ought to be questioning. Because Jesus didn't die to make us happy consumers. He died to destroy the sin that consumes us. He didn't come to protect our bad definitions and our idols. He came to expose them and destroy them. He didn't come to fulfill our dreams. He came to reveal God's vision. Because Jesus knows our dreams 
may be the biggest barrier to his best for us. Let me say that again. Our dreams may be the biggest barrier to his best for us. Because as long as we hold on to our dreams, stubbornly hold on to our dreams, we won't open the door to God's best. God knows we forfeit the better we need when we're obsessed with the better we want. And the word Lord means that God is determined to help us discern the difference. He is determined to help us clean up our definitions. Now that's reassuring. And the recognition of that led me to this thought. Hope is really just Romans 8.28 set to music in our souls. The belief that while God certainly doesn't cause all things, he does not. The belief that all things aren't good, they are not. But the belief that God is committed to ingeniously weaving all things together to produce his desired good, his desired outcomes in our lives. And his outcomes are always good and infinitely better than what we could imagine, create, plead for, or pray for. So as we sail these seas of uncertainty, you can be certain that God will use these days to move you toward more accurate definitions of change for the better. And in so doing, will enable you to have untiring hope in the midst of uncertain times. During these days of pandemic, don't look for God to meet your expectations. Look for God to alter your definitions to alter your definition of what's really important, to alter your definitions of what's eternal, to alter your definitions of what's necessary, indispensable, to alter your definitions of what's liberating, to alter your definitions of faith, your definitions of peace, to alter your definitions of what is truly better, and to alter your definitions of God's heart. And while you walk through that often uncomfortable, maybe I should say always uncomfortable, definition house cleaning, don't get discouraged. Remember what the thief discovered. No situation, no situation is hopeless if Jesus is next to you. I'm going to come back in a moment with a final prayer just to keep you from going for coffee. But before I do that, please allow me the privilege of praying for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, you know that our finite minds, our love of predictability, our love of comfort makes it difficult for us to discern what is truly for our best. And so we're tempted to grumble 
and despair when we should be praising you and embracing hope. Lord, during these days of pandemic, I pray that the deaths that need to occur in each of us would occur. I pray that while we're cleaning up our houses, we will also, more importantly, clean up our definitions. Clean up our definition of better and clean up our definition of Lord. For those who are not tired of the fight but tired in the fight, I pray that your words today would remind them that their fatigue doesn't mean they're losing the fight. It's inevitable, but on the other side of it is their next victory. So, Father, during these days, transform our lives by renewing our thinking about what is better and what Lord means. Clean up our definitions so that we can face these uncertain times with untiring hope. In Jesus' name, amen. And now that final thought. One of the chief enemies of hope is the demonic lie that we don't deserve to see change for the better. In light of things we have done or left undone, we don't deserve to see change for the better. But I would remind you, Jesus didn't come. Praise God. Jesus didn't come to give us what we deserve. He came to give us what we need and what his love desires. Hold on to that and hold on to hope. God bless you.